Welcome to Zealots of the Gate, a podcast of Comment Magazine. I'm Matthew Kamink. I'm Shadi Hamid. Together we research politics, religion, and the future of democracy at Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. We are writing a book together. This podcast represents an informal space where we can talk about how to live with deep difference. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, everyone. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave us a review. You know, we love five-star ones, but, you know, if you don't love us, please feel free to be honest. Join the conversation, and there's a number of ways to do that with us. You can ask us questions on Twitter by using the hashtag ZealotsPod, and we do check that. Or feel free to email us at zealots at comment.org. For those of you who are new to the podcast, I'm Shadi Hamid. I'm a Muslim. My co-host and friend is Matthew Kamink. He is not. He's a Christian. Um, he studies theology, and I'm a political scientist. And sometimes we disagree. And we'll find <laughs> out how much we're going to do that today. Yeah, man. And uh, today we're going to be talking about... Um, being a person of faith in a secular society. And um, this has come in stark relief for you, Shadi, as we were just talking before we started recording about how Ramadan's going and um, fasting in uh, Washington, D.C. with a lot of people who are eating and drinking. And uh, I just realized in our last podcast on fasting, um, I was drinking a cup of tea right in front of oh you. Oh, my God. Wait. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, that was that was not a terribly uh, sensitive thing uh, for me to do, and I'm actually doing it again today. So I apologize for that. Brother. No, but, but Matt, it's okay because you know <laughs> you're not fasting, so you shouldn't have to feel like you're like you have to change the way you live just because you're talking to me. I wouldn't want to put I you know. in that position. But, you know, that is it's an interesting point because there actually is a is an aspect of Christianity that talks about. Um, actually changing your eating habits um, to uh, create a better space for those around you who have um, eating issues. So it's, it's part of being a good neighbor in Christianity actually to, uh, to be a little bit more sensitive to that. So the tea I'm sliding further away from me and uh, (laughs) out of solidarity today, brother, not out of spiritual tourism, no tea for me. Yeah. Um, I appreciate that. First, Shadi, I'd love to hear just a little bit about how Ramadan's going because, yeah. you know, the last week we chatted, we, we talked about all the wonderful benefits of fasting, um, but it seems not to be going as great for you right now. And maybe you could tell us just a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So I was in a better mood about Ramadan and fasting in the previous episode, which you guys should check out. And, you know, what's really cool about this podcast is that we change in real time. And, you know, I want to be more open and personal in this episode. I guess I am to some extent in all of them, but this probably will um, up the ante a little bit because I am, I'm a little bit annoyed and frustrated and it's, the last week in particular has been quite difficult for me um, in terms of fasting and figuring out how to align my fasting schedule and my desire to be more focused on religion and spirituality with a very busy time in my work life. Um, And 
I really feel overwhelmed. And the fact that I can't be, you know, I can't be, you know, fully, fully engaged and productive because I am very dependent on coffee. So generally my normal, my normal thing is that I'll go to a Starbucks and just like park there because the cool thing about Starbucks is that you can just order a drip coffee, then get unlimited free refills. And there's, you know, it's just really convenient. But having that coffee there, it's almost like it's not even just the effect of the caffeine. It makes me go on. It gives me strength just knowing that it's there. And maybe that's a weakness that I have. And part of the challenge of Ramadan is to see, can I separate myself from that need? Anyway, um, I think that sometimes there's a risk of feeling a kind of resentment towards religion when you feel that it's putting you in a place of hardship. And that's made me think more about this question of how difficult is religion supposed to be? Um, and there is this tension in Islam on precisely this issue. And I was, I was, um, I was reading Quran the other night and I just randomly came across um, uh, a prophetic hadith that was in the commentary and then an actual Quranic verse. But just to give folks an example, um, in in a section about fasting in particular, this is uh, the verse 2.185. It says, God desires ease for you and he does not desire hardship for you. Now, the irony, the irony of that is that that's actually, that, that, Verses in the context of the Ramadan fast that there is actually so if you're if you're sick if you're ill you don't have to fast and so God is saying that He doesn't you know He doesn't want to make it difficult if you're going through a kind of health situation right um, but but even for the healthy Ramadan is 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 quite challenging in the context of Washington D.C. or America as Muslim minorities as we talked about in the previous episode because we don't have that kind of broader encouragement from the rest of society. So I've just, I've been feeling like um, I can't be at my best. I can't, I can't get the things done that I want to get done. And I feel torn between these two worlds because I know the arguments for fasting. It does make a lot of sense. And we said, we said in last episode, fasting could, can even be good for democracy, Right. Um, for for the kind of spiritual and emotional benefits it provides, um, but I'm also a product of a liberal secular society, and that's pulling me in this other direction, which is making me reflect more on the kinds of dilemmas that American Muslims find themselves in living in America. I mean, we're one of the first generations that have been you know, fully integrated in American society, born and raised here. This is a relatively new experiment. And during Ramadan, I see a lot of other Muslims for iftar and other kind of social gatherings after sunset. And I've also been struck by how much this discussions of the inner tension come out from other people I'm talking to where they feel torn as well, not just about Ramadan, but also more more broadly you know, people who um, they want to be part of American society and American social life, and that has its own pull, but they want to be better Muslims, 
and on things like, you know, the usual suspects, like dating, relationships, um, drinking, drug, you know, recreational drugs and so on. There are these things that everyone else is doing on a somewhat regular basis. And there is a pressure to take part in those things in a kind of social setting throughout the year. But then, you know, you also want to get more religious and that requires separating yourself to some extent from that. I mean, there's a lot there. And what I really want to get to as we kind of like unspool this is my bigger fear that liberal societies are not designed for religiosity and we're fighting a losing battle. And there is not a single quote unquote liberal democratic society. There may be one and I'm just missing one, but that where religion, religious identification and religious belief hasn't declined significantly over the past several decades. So this idea that we can maintain strong commitments to religious faith, practice, and community in the context of this very powerful liberal secular current, I think it's really worth asking whether this is possible. Um, and this isn't new in the sense that um, I've often argued that, you know, Islam Islam is resistant to secularization. It's exceptional in this sense. And that's actually a good thing because it gives people the structures to stay religious. They still have those constraints more broadly around them in society. But obviously in a Muslim minority context like America, we don't have any of those structures. It's really just up to us. I mean, there's many reasons why these these conversations are fun, Shadi. I think as a Christian, um, obviously Christianity has developed here in the United States for a lot longer than Islam at, at a mass scale. So Christianity and America um, have been negotiating their relationship for, you know, 400 years. And <clears throat> one of the reasons why I enjoy these conversations is that they reveal important ways in which um, Christianity and America um, don't fit one another quite as, as smoothly as some Christians imagine. So, for example, um, the Christian conviction of the Sabbath that we should not work on Sunday, that we should rest. Um, and yet many American Christians work on Sunday and they, they have, um, uh, they have given in to, uh, a working culture in very important ways. And, um, they don't recognize this and they might not recognize this until they listen to perhaps a Muslim neighbor who's struggling to, to hold to a fast in an American culture that doesn't embrace that. So, you know, American culture does not like Sabbath rest, right? American culture likes working 24 seven and total productivity and resting feels like a waste. Um, you know, we can think in terms of consumption, poverty, there's a wide variety of, um, historic Christian ethics that, um, you know, Christian culture in America has capitulated to the nation around it. And it's not until we interact with another faith like Islam, who is 
also struggling with this identity that we come to see how much we as American Christians have capitulated to, you know, broader American cultural trends. Um, so I'm appreciative of that. I think, um, but you, you brought up a lot in there. I, I think one of the questions that kind of hangs behind it is the argument being made by Catholic integralists, which is that we need a, a religious state that can create laws that make it easier to be people of faith, that um, we need laws that can sort of prop up religious ways of being in the world. Um, I wonder, you know, you, you mentioned that as sort of a haunting concern for you. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and Catholic integralism and your, your own personal wrestle with, yeah, the, do I, do I want to live in a, in a free and liberal society or do I want to live in, in some form of a, a, a religious state that sort of props <laughs> these things up? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the great thing about liberalism, but also what makes liberalism dangerous to religion is that it is actually pretty compelling. Like I wouldn't, I, I would never want to live anywhere else. I absolutely love America and living in America. But I say that precisely as I also realize that it's not necessarily been great for the kind of more religious Muslim I would like to in theory be, you know? So, and that is really the power of liberalism is that it, it, it pull, it, it puts us in this kind of liminal state of both happiness and unhappiness. And we see it all the time. I mean, obviously I think most Americans would acknowledge that it's wonderful that we have the, the blessing and, and, and privileged to have been born and raised here or live here currently. Um, but at the same time, there is an epidemic of despair, depression, loneliness, which we touched on, um, which we touched on in previous episodes, and it's becoming a, a, a mental health crisis. So those two things can coexist, the wonders of America, but also the fact that a lot of us are unfulfilled and unhappy. I have said one thing I'd like to say in the past to unsuspecting audiences is that America is the best place in the world to be a Muslim today. And I would have said that, I don't know, like four or five years ago without a second thought. I don't know. I would probably still say it, but with a caveat. Also, it's a low bar because a lot, you know, the rest of the world kind of like sucks in this regard. But and certainly Muslim majority countries are pretty bad when it comes to being a Muslim, you know, somewhat ironically, or maybe not. So, you know, it's a low bar and America definitely clears it, but still like, you know, it probably would have been, it would have been easier to be a Muslim in the time of the prophet. Granted there was persecution and, you know, people had to fight in battles, but in terms of like the strength of one's own faith, when you had Prophet Muhammad and the companions around you, you weren't going to really doubt as much about your religious faith. You would have felt much more closely connected to God. You wouldn't have had to worry about the cult of productivity. You would have been in a nurturing community, but also later on after Prophet Muhammad established 
the first kind of uh, Muslim proto-state in Medina, um, that the whole structure of the broader society is oriented around helping Muslims be more in touch with God and more committed. And, and that's not just a question of belief, but also fulfilling the various rituals, um, charity, almsgiving, um, helping the poor, um, breaks for prayer. So, you know, no one would expect you to be productive or doing work or being a merchant during the prayer time. So you have nothing else to do when everyone else is going to the mosque. So even if you don't really feel like it, you're going to get your prayer in, you know? So Shadi, I want to push you here because I, I feel like you're setting up a little bit of a false choice. That's, that's a very common false choice um, that I think the Catholic integralists and, um, and liberals both jump into, which is um, we have to choose between um, a totally free individualistic society or a religious state that structures and creates a society in which religion is easier. That those that there are only two choices, um, and that's what they are. And I think that basically in this political imagination, all we see are individuals trying to live out their religious convictions and a state that creates an apparatus of laws and society. And I think what 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 you're missing in your account and what so many Americans miss is the mediating institutions, uh, the mediating communities um, that are in between the individual and the state. And that is historically what has made America a country that had deep religious freedom I'm sorry, deep individual freedom and a flourishing religious marketplace at the same time. And what's actually missing in America today is that, honestly, the failure of those mediating institutions, the failure to to build strong churches and strong mosques and strong, you know, Christian and Muslim associations and schools, because our I think what the true issue is is that religion and spirituality in America has become too individualistic rather than yes. communal. And so I think the core challenge, Shadi, is not that you need um, a, a, an Islamic state that will help you be a better Muslim. And it's not that you just need to be a better individual Muslim. Like you just need to suck it up and have more willpower and be more religious. I think what you actually need is a Muslim community that would surround and carry you from time to time when you fall down. And so like Ramadan is meant to be communal and, and that's the case for Christianity. So I'll stop talking about Muslims. I'll talk about Christians like Christians uh, in America really struggle with this individualism. It tears apart um, churches and it hollows them out because they believe that the purpose of a church is to serve their individual needs and wants. They go to the church wanting to be fed, wanting to be encouraged, wanting to be helped, um, rather than understanding that the church is a place to serve others and to be pushed and grown. 
um, and to be challenged and to be made uncomfortable and to have to sit next to people that you don't necessarily like. So they, we, we show up at these religious institutions as consumers, uh, as, as individual consumers, and we shop for different churches that might serve us well. And, um, and so when those, when those church institutions fall apart, then you you fall into this form of American Christianity that can only see the individual evangelical and the state. And, um, and now I'm going to make a big jump here and it is to Trump evangelicals and this, this formation of an evangelical identity that is not rooted in a small local church. Um, but it is rooted online in these mass culture war movements um, that are deeply connected to political leaders and political institutions. So evangelicals are not primarily being formed today in small group ministries and with one-on-one -on -one contact with their pastor. Um, it's in, you know, mega churches online, um, mega protests and social media. Um, it's not in small, slow, embodied religious communities and institutions. And so as those mediating institutions weaken and fall apart, um, then all you have is a bunch of random individuals trying really hard to be religious <laughs> um, on their own by themselves. And then they, they try and they fail and they get down on themselves because it's religion is this solitary practice. It's something that you do with your, yeah, with your solitude uh, and you can't maintain that. And so I, I guess I would just say that, you know, this, this revival of Christian nationalism or Catholic integralism um, or even Islamic um, extremism, part of it is this, this sense that, okay, I can't do this faith thing alone. I can't do it by myself. So I need a political leader to do it for me. Like I need a political system. I need the state to help me because I can't possibly imagine a community that would help me. Um, and, and so that's the false choice that I want to push you on, that it's not either the state, it's not either state enforcing religion or just being a better spiritual person, that there's these mediating institutions that we need. So. Yeah, this is great. Before I get to all that, I want to just share a little anecdote because it gets to part of what you're saying here. Maybe I've told you this before. I don't think I've said it like publicly, but okay, there was this time. It was in Cairo in the mid-2000s. I was relatively young back then. And I had never seen someone doing drugs before. So I was in a taxi with a friend of a friend, and it was a kind of like random collection of a couple people. So I was with this guy in the back seat who I just met that day. And um, he pulls out... Um, like a hashish joint. So hashish is just like the Egyptian version of pot. And um, he's just smoking in the back of the cab. And I had not like really seen this before. And I wasn't used to the idea of Muslims doing recreational drugs. Um, 
anyway, we're, we're talking and he, you know, I, I mentioned like what I do at that point, I was probably a graduate student working on, um, Islamist movements in Egypt and, and the broader region. So we got into this conversation about, um, you know, where is he politically and ideologically? Does he sympathize or dislike Islamist groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, that sort of thing? And somewhat to my surprise, he he kind of went into an impassioned, um, like, mini-speech about how he wishes Egypt could be an Islamic state be- but then I was like, well, wait a second, you know, I wouldn't have guessed that because you're smoking a joint in front of me. And he said, well, yes, that's precisely the point. I want the state to prevent me from smoking this joint. Um, and he felt he felt shame for not being a better Muslim. And he had kind of, I suppose, given up, at least in this particular example. And he, he was... He was reaching for a higher power, but not God, the state, to do what he was not able to do himself. And I think that that is just like a kind of extreme example of the point that you're making, this sense that we can't do it on our own and someone else has to step in. Now, on the false choice, so I actually think that there there is sort of a, a middle ground, um, but... I wonder if the middle ground is possible, which would just be something more or less like America is today, but an America that is more conducive to open and outward religious practice and identification, where religion wasn't stigmatized, especially in major urban centers, especially among young people on college campuses, etc., that you know, if there was a way to have a liberal society which still had a deep an abiding respect for religious faith and did not work at cross purposes with it. And America, one might argue, was like that as recently as a as a couple decades ago. Um, so, but the, the question is, is that middle ground possible on the macro level when there seems to be something about liberalism that always wants more for itself? It and then there's this kind of natural secularizing process, which never seems to end. Religion always finds itself in a weaker position because of the like overarching power of the liberal idea. And also the fact that... So, but Shady, you know... Keep, you, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Okay, push you, me. You said there's a natural, uh, you know, secularizing process. And, you know, we had an episode a while back about the problematic use of the word religion. And I think it might be, um, so, and, you know, talking about secularism as if it's the absence of religion, um, I would simply say that it is a new and emerging religion that is, uh, at the moment, beating Christianity and Islam in America. Secularism, individualistic, liberal secularism is winning in America, and it's beating uh, Islam and Christianity in terms of recruiting the youth. But what I would, what I would say, and I'd imagine you'd say something similar is that it is an open question how sustainable, um, secularism is, you know, as you just recently wrote about, um, 
the high rates of anxiety and depression in the youth um, today and their struggles to find identity, it is an open question as to whether secularism can produce, you know, emotionally healthy, stable, virtuous societies in which people are generous and open and humble. But I think it's better um, to speak about America converting to secularism than um, losing religion. It's it's not losing religion. It's just religiosity is moving in an important sense. And and one one sociologist I liked, he he talked about how um, religion is becoming disembedded, yeah, from institutions, and it's you know it's sort of having a, a free radical spirituality in which we're looking for um, spiritual identity and purpose in politics, in meditation, in mindfulness. Um, in in uh, dieting and exercise, fashion, whatever it is, it's not that we're less religious in America. It's just that our religious practices have shifted um, to consumption and shopping and um, those sorts of things. But it's not. It's an open question as to whether or not that's good for us, right? And, and I'm not sure. Oh no! But is it even an open question? It seems like we have the answer, and it's not. Wait, I mean, yeah, we're right? saying that it's not good. It's not good for us. Yeah, I'm trying to be generous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but okay. So it's so it's that the state liberalism. It's it's influencing the state, the academy, medicine, corporations. Yeah, it's it's widespread, and that does make it more difficult for Christianity and Islam to flourish in America. Um, and, you know, historically Christian states have done the same thing to Muslims and liberals and Jews and Muslim states have done the same thing to uh, liberals and Christians. Wait, what do you mean the same thing? What, what? So we have historical records of Islamic states making life difficult for Christians Jews, atheists. We have historical records of Christian states making life difficult for Muslims and liberals and so forth. Um, this is how religion typically behaves. And um, a secular state is no different. Um, secular states often make life difficult for other faiths. Um, and that is that is sort of the way of the world. And every faith has to wrestle with this question of how do you deal with minority communities? Yeah. So, you know, a question to you on this, this idea of being disembedded. Because, yes, if you find a community, you can embed yourself in that and that can help. So I'm now, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm unmasked. I mean, there is there is a Muslim community center and a mosque that I, that I go to currently. Um, that said, in terms of being more strongly embedded in Islamic practice, I have been thinking more recently about whether, um, uh, whether exploring certain Sufi orders might be an interesting path because one one problem that I've had historically is 
seeing Islam or seeing religious practice as being primarily about the fear of punishment or hellfire specifically. And, you know, I think we, you know, we talked about this in season one, that there has been this modern shift away from Sufi spiritual practice, which emphasizes more love of God instead of just fear of punishment. And, you know, those are maybe two ways of looking at why people, why people try to commit good deeds and to do what God commands of them. And you operate at those two levels at the most basic level, fear can be enough, but is fear sustainable and is fear the best way to get closer to God? And that's where the second step of loving God or reaching towards God becomes more important. And I think, unfortunately, in in the modern period, the Sufi aspects have been de-emphasized because they've been seen as otherworldly, mystical, irrational, not in tune with modern life, not in tune with productivity and practicality. It just seems backwards and retrograde. And so Muslim reformers over the course of the 20th century very consciously began to stigmatize Sufi approaches. Anyway, but the Sufi approaches are helpful in that they can kind of unlock a spiritual depth. Now, the problem is, as an individual, if I'm looking at these various options, I'm sort of back in a place as a consumer. There's, I can look at, oh, okay, here's option one, two, three, four, and five. Here are this um, this Sufi community has a certain yeah, vibe. You're, you're this, back to shopping, Shadi. Shopping, right? exactly. You're, you're, yeah. you're shopping for a different, you know, Islamic theology or practice that might help you. And, and you know, I think Sufism might do that. But I think, yeah, like you, you recognize it seems to me that you actually need an institution. You need a community of people who know you. And but I have to know. choose that, though. You do. And that's, that is the difficult part, right? It's, it's not forced on you. Um, so you do have to choose, but you, you need, it's not so much that you go to a mosque, but that the mosque is, is yours and you belong to the mosque in a way that, that the mosque belongs to you and you belong to the mosque and they know who you are <laughs> yeah. and you who knew, know who they are. And so that, because you need a, um, a space, a communal space in a liberal society um, that can help you believe literally like we cannot believe alone. And it reminds me of this time I was in this church in Seattle, which, you know, is a notoriously, um, secular city. I think less than 5% of people in Seattle go to church. Um, and I can remember a pastor saying to us that, you know, Hey, we're going to stand up and say the apostles creed. And if you can't say it today, you know, don't, don't worry, we will say it for you. Um, and it is, um, I think it's the sociologist Peter Berger who talks about, uh, plausibility structure, um, that we need a community that can make faith plausible to us. So when you're all alone in your house, you know, Shadi, I know you're a single guy, right? Well, you need a, um, a community within which Islam makes sense and Islam is attractive and Islam is, um, life-giving. 
So being able to see other people who can model that for you and help you, um, you need that plausibility structure as a human being in order to believe because secularism is, as I mean, Charles Taylor talks about this, secularism is this awareness that your life could be otherwise. Mm. Right? It's this awareness mm. that you are contingent and maybe you could have been born a Buddhist or an atheist or a Jew. And so you're, you're sort of walking about the si a secular city and you're haunted by this sense that your life could have been otherwise. And it seems kind of random that you're a Muslim or that you're a Christian. And so what Berger says is we need communities within which, you know, these things are um, attractive. They make sense. They, they help us understand that. I mean, the other thing that Charles Taylor would say though, is that in a secular society, everyone is haunted um, by this sense that their life could be otherwise. So it's not secular, secular society is hard for Christians and Jews, but it's also hard for secular people. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're, they're haunted also by this realization that they might be wrong too. There might be a God. And what if there is? <laughs> and, uh, so th that's, that's what it is. Right. And I think at some level, all of us, well, maybe not all of us, but I think it is quite common even among believers in in the American context. I mean, are any of us 100% certain that we're right? And I, I don't want to go into like potentially tricky territory here where people will get the wrong idea of what I'm saying. But I do think that when you actually talk to people, the vast majority of even like believers, you know, practicing observant Muslims, um, you know, they're not a hundred. There's no way to be a hundred percent sure that we are correct about Islam. Now, I'm 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 as sure as I think that I can possibly be in the current context. But what is that? Ninety nine percent, ninety eight percent. Because ultimately, like, let's say you have Muslims and Christians, they both believe that they're right about their account of the truth and the nature of God and so forth. But we do know, at like, just as a, as a matter of, like, logical, like, just in terms of, like, how reality works and how you can have two contradicting ideas be right simultaneously, we will find out after our lives— who was more right than the other on particular truth accounts. So all of us are going around saying that we're like 99% sure that our religion is right. But of course, like I think deep down, we understand that some of us are going to be wrong. Well, I think doubt is, I think doubt is an important part of being human. It's also an important part of being a person of faith and both Islam and Christianity have real resources for wrestling with that doubt and being honest with that. You know, um, Islam and Christianity do not ignore the human experience of doubt and the human experience of faltering. Um, and, and I think what you're, that would be my def, my definition of fundamentalism is the total rejection of doubt. Yeah. This sense that we, I think we quoted Zizek uh, maybe it was in our first episode, but Zizek talks about the fundamentalist is the person who knows 
absolutely. And, and he asked this question of who are the fundamentalists? Um, and he, you know, very thankfully doesn't create a, um, a division between the quote unquote religious and secular. Um, but that any human being is capable of fundamentalism. So there's such a thing as secular fundamentalism. Oh yeah, for um, sure. For sure. Okay. So w one thing I want to share because it gets to, you just, I love this Peter Berger quote, um, to the effect of secularism, pl plausibility structure, but like secularism is the possibility of living other lives. Yeah. And always having that possibility in front of you and you have all these kind of counterfactual existences. It made me think of really a fascinating tweet from the other night from my friend. He's a, he's a philosopher and writer, Oliver Traldi, and we can include a link to this thread in the show notes. I think it captures this really well. And I actually really give him credit for being this open and vulnerable on Twitter. Um, so he says this, quote unquote, a feeling I get in certain kinds of situations is that I'm not quite up to the task of living my own life, given that it's a whole life and, th and that there's only one. I get overwhelmed by emotions and paralyzed by choices, and I often falter in moments that turn out to be important. Next tweet. Um, and then I'll just stop there. He says, I can't get used to the fragility of everything and the, and the necessity of continuing to make decisions in each and every moment. And I don't feel I have immediate access to my own desires. Just figuring out what I myself want can take so much time that I can't get it anymore. And I, I, I love this because I think this just sort of like captures like the current moment of confusion in American life right now in light of all the personal challenges and the sense of being torn in different directions that we are really overwhelmed by this unlimited amount of choices and the fact that every day, I mean, if you just think about this more consciously, and I wouldn't actually recommend that you do this all the time, and you think about how how over the course of the day, you know, you're, de you're doing a lot of deciding and those small choices can have unanticipated impact because they build. And then you have all these counterfactual lives that you could have lived and each day. You're deciding which possibilities to close off and which possibilities to embrace. And I think for a lot of people that can be really overwhelming and we talked about shopping for religions. I think sometimes people will, just, okay, they try out these different options. None of them really fits. And then it's sort of like, where do we go from here? And then they're paralyzed. But anyway, that just really resonated with me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a rich quote. It, it reminds me of this other, I think it was a poet who said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Oh, and this, this longing for someone somewhere to give me an identity somewhere, someone somewhere to um, make a choice on my behalf. And there's this important aspect of, you know, modern individualism that we create our own identity, that we give ourselves purpose, that we are the captains of our fate, that we make our own meaning. Um, and, 
there is this belief that if we if we break away from faith, if we break away from institutions, we will be completely free. Uh, and yet we find this lament in secular society that um, personal choice does not create freedom. It doesn't create flourishing. Well, Matt, let me ask you something. So there's a quote that I like a lot that um, from, you know, I call him an evangelical friend, but it's really your quote. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically, according to Matthew Kamink, he says, you only learn about the river when you try to swim against the flow. Oof, I like that a lot. This is one smart dude, smart theologian right there. And then I think you also said as a kind of um, addendum to that, quote unquote, it's a dead fish that goes with the flow. And we did talk about, we have talked um, about the strangeness of being a believer in a secular society and how in some ways we have to embrace the idea of going against the current. But since it's your quote, I'm curious, like, how difficult should religion be? So for believing Christians who want to feel and be more Christian and closer to Christ, to what extent should they feel like they really have to consciously go against this overwhelming current? Is that the way, is that something that we should accept? Is there some pleasure to be had in that process? Because strangeness is actually good for the believer to feel strange and to feel that you're standing out and you're doing something that other people are doing? Or should there be a way to actually go with the flow at least a little bit more? Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, I think, well, first of all, I have to say that the the fish and river analogy, I think I pulled that from C.S. Lewis. So I don't think that's an original, uh. <laughs> I don't think that's an original K-Mink there. <laughs> But it is really helpful, and it, I think it, it helps understand what's happening a little bit for you with Ramadan, is that in fasting, um, you, uh, you're pushing against the stream of productivity, right? Because when you fast, you're not as productive. And you discover through fasting something important about Washington, D.C. and American society that you would have not, you would not have recognized it unless you fasted, um, you would not have recognized how, um, how obsessed this society is with productivity and consumption. The only way you could see that about America is if you went against the American stream of productivity. So it reveals that similarly for, you know, a, a Muslim woman who wears, uh, you know, the hijab, she learned something important about femininity in America and sexuality in the West and gender relationships by putting the headscarf on, um, her, her very public presence, um, actually helps her neighbors reflect on what they think about gender and what they think about clothing and, and so forth. So it is by, by flowing against that. Now I've lost the second part of your question. What was the second thing you were talking about? Well, I mean, there are other options of thinking about the current and, and I guess this gets to the, the basic question, how difficult should religion be? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I would just say that I don't, um, first of all, I think it is good for religion to 
um, have to fight for itself. Mm. I think that faith is healthier when it is not upheld by big political structures. I think when faith and politics are married to one another and they serve one another, uh, it's bad for politics and it's bad for faith. Um, and it tends to make faiths uh, lazy, uh, cruel, and stupid. Um, so I think it's bad for Christians and it's bad for Muslims um, to to re- reside in those kinds of states. Okay, just just a little point of clarification. In in our famous cal- um, is the Caliphate good episode? Which yeah, I would highly recommend to our listeners. That was episode number 10 and we can include a link to that in the show notes matt you know if i recall i got the sense that you were more sympathetic to our guests case for (laughs) the caliphate than i was Uh uh-huh so how but you just but now you're saying like in a stronger sense that this state structures kind of subsidizing religion makes religion lazy and you know it's bad so i mean but I, I don't think it's that simple. I think... Yeah. Do you want so to maybe think, just explain? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. What I was sympathetic with in terms of the caliphate is his argument that um, Islam is a political religion that hmm. demands um, certain political structures and wants certain political structures, that Islam is not a personal spirituality. It's not just an individualistic belief and practice, but Islam has, you know, political structural changes that it wants to make. And uh, in that particular conversation, I felt like you were individualizing Islam to a, a personal spirituality that could fit nicely within liberalism. And, and I felt like he was pushing back at you at that and saying, no, actually we, we want a political structure. And so I was just, with, I was yeah. sitting within the logic of Islam. <laughs> yeah, which is and, actually uh, like a really cool thing to, I mean, I'm glad that you put it that way because I don't think we do this nearly enough of sitting in the logic of another's faith and that you were able to do that over the co- course of an hour and a half episode is actually like really impressive and I'd recommend <laughs> it to others to give it a shot. So, but it, but it is to say that, like, I'm not as versed in Islamic history as you are, but I can say that for Christian history, <clears throat> um, the Christian church um, has not been terribly healthy when it marries itself very closely with the state. So, I mean, particularly if we're talking about today, uh, the Russian church and the Russian state um, serve one another in some pretty um unhealthy ways and uh it's not good for either side so i i think that and then here this is you know i'm i'm following abraham kuyper's political theology here that he wanted um he wanted you know generous freedom for religions to exist in public life um but he didn't want them propped up by the state um he wanted them to have to fight for their, um, for their believers. Uh, he wanted, he wanted, um, churches to exist because they were healthy, good churches, not because they were getting paid by the, by the state 
are getting special special treatment. Um, he wanted you know corrupt and sloppy and lazy churches to close, um, and um, he thought that was healthiest for faith, and he thought that was healthiest for democracy. And so, similarly in America, I don't want the American government to give Christianity special political favors um, because I think that's bad for Christianity. Um, I think it's it's unhealthy for us. I think we need to we should expect things to be difficult. So that I'm sorry, getting to your question about difficulty, um, I think if your faith can't exist in a difficult environment, then it's not worth believing in. I think that's what I would say. It's not worth fighting for, and it's not supposed to be easy. Um, at least within Christianity, we're promised a cross. That's, you know, that's uh, that's not a happy um, back massage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So religions have to fight for themselves, and that's good. You know, point taken. But what happens if religion fights for itself and keeps on losing? Because that seems to be the case. You know, at least, you know, if there's a story that we can tell about the modern era, particularly in America and Western Europe and to different degrees elsewhere, it is a story of a kind of almost like unstoppable decline and one that's quite precipitous. So clearly, Christians at least have not managed to rise up to that challenge. And to they may have fought a good fight. I mean, the, I suppose the jury's out on like how good of a fight it was, but. Well, I, I think there's a number of different ways to go at that. I think in one way um, you could say that yes, Christianity is losing in terms of fewer people are um, going to churches. Um, but in another way, uh, Christianity won in very important ways. So one thing that Christianity cared a lot about was, care for the poor. And now the care for the poor is a, a central tenet of every Western society um, and state. Uh, Christianity established hospitals, and now um, there are vast and very generous healthcare systems throughout the West. Uh, Christianity established universities and cared deeply about schools and the education of children. And now there are schools throughout the West that are generously funded and anyone can be a part of. Uh, Christianity cared about the rights of women um, and uh, in a Roman society that did not. And now women are empowered throughout Western society. So very important ways Christianity won uh, a, more, a variety of moral and political arguments in the West. And the West is living off of um, moral and political capital that Christianity created. On the other side, I would say that I think it is a good thing for Christianity, for certain forms of Christianity to lose for a while. Hmm. Hmm. Um, that Christianity needs in the West needs to be humbled. Um, it needs to be disciplined, frankly. Um, because it has participated in some tremendous evils, slavery, racism, foreign wars against uh, Islam, an obsession with consumption, and uh, a just a, a total disconnection from the person of Jesus and his teachings and his love. And so 
um, there's an, there's an important, um, losing that I think would be really good for the Christian. Losing can be good. Yeah. It's not all about winning. <laughs> I mean, though, I mean, brother, it is Holy Week right now and we're coming up on Good Friday and, you know, the, the center of the Christian faith is a cross, which is, you know, a symbol of, of failure and loss and a belief that, that strength and life comes out of losing and sacrifice. And so, um, I think that's core to how I think about, um, the state of the American church today is, um, I am hopeful that in and through death, uh, you know, the Holy spirit will, will create a better church in and through this and will teach us something important. Um, and frankly, the church is growing in really amazing and dramatic ways in Africa and Latin True. America and Asia. And they will be, uh, leading the church, you know, and are leading the church today. So those are, those are some of my responses to what you have to say. I, I'm curious, you know, to answer your own question, should faith be, should faith be hard? Uh, you know, can you speak to that? I think you said something like Islam is supposed <sighs> to be easy. You yeah. were saying before the podcast, what is it? What did you, what did you <laughs> say to me about Islam being easy? <laughs> okay. Well, the Quranic verse says something. It is to that effect. God desires ease for you. He does not desire hardship for you. And then the prophetic hadith is make things easy, not difficult. Cause people to rejoice, not to flee. And obviously those have to be understood in their own context um, and not kind of oversimplified or misunderstood. But there is a sense that if you have two equally legitimate options in Islamic law, that there is a kind of wisdom in choosing the easier course. So if God is allowing you to, for example, shorten and combine your prayers when you're traveling, as many Muslims do, that is perfectly okay, because God doesn't want to make it difficult for you when you're traveling. So, But others might say, well, we want to go above and beyond and still do the full prayers in, in, in their separate times and so forth. But that kind of, in, that extra intensity moves Muslims away from this idea of being the middle people. So there, there's, um, uh, Islam, Islam is, um, the Ummah is supposed to be, the, 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 the community of Islam is supposed to be a community of the middle, the wasat in Arabic. And that's something that Muslims will often say. Uh, there is something to be said for the middle path. Um, you know, so that I think is all, I, I think that makes a lot of sense in a Muslim majority context, but the question of ease and difficulty the standards by which we make those judgments of ease and difficulty are very different in liberal societies where we have a completely different idea of what it means to be for things to be easy. It means choosing whatever you want. It means having all of these choices. It means not living under constraint. It means not engaging in serious practices of self-denial. Um, so on and so forth. So I, I just think that even if Islam was meant to not be super difficult in the beginning, um, it has become more difficult. And, you know, we touched on this in the Andrew Tate episode 
which I would also highly recommend, that this idea of Islam being tough and badass and, you know, difficult, and it goes against the liberal consensus and all of that, that is one reason that some people are attracted to Islam, precisely because it's not soft and fluffy like supposedly Christianity is, at least from this perspective. And I know, of course, you, you know, that's, we're, not, we're not endorsing that view, but it is a view that people have. So um, I think there's two ways of looking at it. And, you know, the Catholic integralists and other or small O Orthodox Christians do emphasize the degree of difficulty in Christianity. I mean, Rod Dreher at the American Conservative often makes this point that orthodoxy is more compelling precisely because it's more difficult, that at some basic level people are seeking difficulty, and maybe that's just a reflection of the fact that I'm just not as into this degree of difficulty as I should be, and that could just be a personal <laughs> failure. Yeah, there's actually an emerging field called the economics of religion. I don't know if you've ever studied that, but it it looks at... Yeah, that stricter religions actually are the ones exactly. that went out over time. Yeah, that yeah. that you want to raise the bar, and um, churches that lower the bar um, in terms of uh, faith and practice end up dying. There was actually a study of churches in the Pacific Northwest. Um, this uh, more liberal sociologist he wanted to study churches in the the Pacific Northwest, and his. His, his assumption was that really progressive churches in Seattle would do well and they would grow because Seattle is such a progressive culture. And so you want to you plant churches in Seattle that are progressive, that, that, that tell people what they want to hear and um, that connect with uh, the culture itself. And so he goes to Seattle to do this study. And uh, he can't find a single progressive church in Seattle that's growing. Um, and in fact, he finds <laughs> wow. many pretty darn conservative churches in Seattle that are growing. And he, you know, he's a little bit, a um, little bit frustrated by this. But that's that's essentially the point: is that um, you know, if if your sermon on Sunday sounds exactly like NPR. <clears throat> Why not just stay in bed and, and watch NPR or listen to NPR, right? Like, why should I go to your sermon? <laughs> that it, it Faith actually has to be strange. It has, actually has to be different um, in order to exist and flourish in a secular society. And so this sort of chasing of secularism is, is a bit of a dead end, as these economists of religion would argue, is that that faith actually needs to be strange. And, you know, I, I think in terms of faith's difficulty, I have to look back to, you know, the early church's experience of real persecution. You know, we have uh, American Christians today talk about being persecuted, um, which is just nonsense to me. Um, they've clearly never, you know, studied what happened to the early church under the Roman persecution or in, they're clearly unaware of what's happening to Christians in China and, and other places as well. Um, and so, you know, I think that we have in America a bit of a persecution uh, complex um, that we need to be thinking and talking a little bit about. Well, maybe just a final question on this point um, before it's lost to history. 
what okay so we're talking about the american context but what if there was a hypothetical somewhat ideal society where 97 percent of the population was christian but not just nominally that by and large those christians were churchgoers believers maybe it'd be like a small state and you know i don't know like fifty thousand christians or something do you think that would in some ways, obviously, then you wouldn't be strange and you wouldn't be going against the current or, you know, trying to highlight strictness in the face of laxity. Do you think that that, like, would you want to live in a society like that? I'm not even talking about a Christian state. It would just be, a, you know, probably, you know, maybe even just a neutral state that allows for free religious practice, but it just happens to be the case that the preponderance of the population are committed believers. Do you think that would be better for you and your kids? Or do you think like, do you think there would actually be a dark side to that? Yeah, I think that's a wonderful um, question, theoretical. Um, I think that um, Christianity is, is a missional faith. And so it, it seeks to go out and to engage um, those who do not believe. And um, there's one theologian says that the church exists by mission, like a fire exists by burning. So hmm. the church has to be hmm. moving and talking with non-believers in order to exist. <laughs> and so... It's not it's not healthy for Christians to just be surrounded by other Christians. So I think that absolutely um I wouldn't want you know my family or my church to only be surrounded by Christians. I don't think that would be good for them. Um and it wouldn't be good for me. That's why I enjoy talking to you, man, and that might be a good way to <laughs> good way to reflect that we, you know, I mean, uh in scripture we talk about iron sharpening iron that you need hard things to, um, to, you know, push up against and push on you and, and, um, um, to sharpen your faith and, and give you clarity. So I love that. I'm grateful for you, man. That's an optimistic note. And I feel, I feel more inspired after this conversation. I'm going to think about difficulty differently now, at least for the rest of today. So thanks. <laughs> thanks. But man. I, but I mean, the plausibility structure of a community that can support you. I think it's a, it's a very important um, countercultural thing not to be an individualistic consumer of spirituality and religion, but to be someone who relies upon a larger community, you know, a larger umma that can that can carry you from time to time. That's um that's something we we need as human beings. We were not created to be alone. Amen to that, brother. Okay, so thanks to all of you for listening to Zealots at the Gate. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I really did, and I'm really happy we had a bit more of a personal conversation today. If you like what you heard, check out our other episodes and also check out our host, Comment Magazine, at comment.org. And again, we want to hear from you. So you can find us on Twitter at my handle, Shadi Hamid, and Matthews is Matthew Kamek, his full name too. Note the Dutch spelling. Or use the hashtag ZealotsPod on Twitter. You can also feel free to send us an email at zealots at comment.org. And 
please do consider leaving us a rating if you enjoyed this episode. Yeah, friends, our thanks as well to our sponsor, Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. Zealots at the Gate is hosted by Comet Magazine. It's produced by Alec Crummy, audience strategy by Matt Crummy, and editorial direction by Ann Snyder. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kamink. And I'm Shadi Hamid. Thanks for joining us. See you guys. Oh,